it's nice to get to talk substantively. I'm at this podium a lot, and I rarely get to say anything uh, except welcome, hello, and thank you. Uh, so today I actually would like to talk about uh, what I work on. And I was reminded as I was listening to Dale of when I was in graduate school in the late 1970s, I was finishing, and my thesis uh, advisor was Richard Cottam, who uh, wrote widely on Iran. And at the time of the Iranian Revolution, when I was finishing up, he was uh, back and forth often between Washington and Paris, uh, trying to get a channel of dialogue between what was then the emerging revolutionary government in Paris and some people like uh, Henry Preck and others at the State Department and Gary Sick at the National Security Council and helping them try to understand what was going on. And his friend from when he had been uh, just graduated from Harvard, a man named Mehdi Bazargan, who he had met in the early 50s when he had gone to uh, Iran for the first time, had been named as the leader of the revolutionary government by Ayatollah Khomeini. And he was trying to explain to me uh, why the revolution in Iran, as anti-American as it was on the surface, should not be misunderstood by me as really anti-American uh, in some profound and deep uh, way in terms of Iranian hatred for America. And I remember a year or two ago uh, hosting here Ibrahim Yazdi, who I first met uh, back then. And Ibrahim Yazdi was Mehdi Bazagan's foreign minister in the first revolutionary government of Iran, and I remember talking to Dick back then, wondering, well, what do you mean these guys aren't anti-American? Look what's on TV. And as some of you are old enough to remember what was on TV back in 1978 and 79. He said, well, you know, Ibrahim Yazdi's an American. He's lived in the U.S. for 25 years, and he's having to decide whether to surrender his American citizenship to take his role as foreign minister of the revolutionary government of Iran. He said, Rick, this is much more complicated uh, than you know. And he was right. I was reminded of that yesterday or Wednesday. People in my office were scurrying around trying to figure out how to pay Saadid Nibrahim. And evidently this was a crisis in the campus because he was one of the first non-resident alien visitors to be here and these new January 1 rules on what it means to move money into the hands of, of these kinds of people. And he and I had been talking all morning about his time in prison and the people were working, working and working and trying to find his check and how we were going to do all this. And he said, well, Rick, you know, I may be one of the most uh, prominent known opponents of uh, the President Mubarak uh, and advocate for human rights in Egypt, and I am, you know, a prominent Egyptian voice, but I also am an American. Here's my passport. Would that make it easier? <laughs> I guess uh, I need to start there to pick up where Dale left off. Life was complicated then and now, uh, both in terms of how they feel about the United States today here, and it's a very diverse group uh, in the Middle East. I put a poster up here to talk about the kind of anti-Americanism that I think many agree is truly anti-American, and it's not hard to find it. Uh, you can find it, uh, how do we go forward here? Yeah. This is a Palestinian uh, protest against settlements in the West Bank. And I start here because I think you're all very familiar with these kind of images. They're on our TV all the time, uh, both protesting us, the linkage of Israel, settlements, and so forth. And this is what I think bothers us most. This is uh, a translated statement. I think it's mostly correct, but Dale uh, could tell you for sure. Uh, came before the 2001 um, recruitment speech 
This was uh, Osama bin Laden earlier. I think the earliest statements I started to watch him make were in 96. But this 98 one has caught a lot of attention. It's reproduced uh, often, but actually pretty hard to find nowadays uh, in the U.S. or even on the web. It's been pretty well wiped, wiped away. It's been interesting what's happened. In any case, the ruling uh, to kill Americans and their allies, civilians and military, is an individual duty for every Muslim. You, you can read it yourself and I'll leave it there for a minute. That's the kind of anti-Americanism that certainly captured our attention uh, in the last several years, and I want to speak a little bit about how we should understand that. I think we're convinced very often that anti-Americanism is widespread in the Middle East, and our debate has turned to why is that so? And there's some easy explanations that have come to the surface to answer that question, why is that so? There's the argument that Islam and the culture it's associated with is incompatible with the values of the West. Now even among neoconservatives in the United States, there's no agreement on whether that's true. Paul Wolfowitz, for instance, the Deputy Secretary of Defense, says it's absolutely not true that uh, people in the Muslim world want the same kind of democratic freedom and values as those in the West do. Now, Bernard Lewis and George Will, who are often fellow travelers uh, with Paul Wolfowitz on many issues, say, no, he's completely wrong on this one. Uh, without an Islamic reformation, according to Lewis, uh, you can't have any compromise, really, that would last between Islam and Western culture. Of course, for the last 50 years, we've had an easy and a very close relationship with societies in the Muslim world that are very conservative socially, like Saudi Arabia and Abu Dhabi, just to name two, Pakistan, uh, on and off, and had no problem with those relationships for a long time. The culture didn't seem to impede uh, that then, uh, only now. A spin-off of that first explanation is that they hate globalization. I'm not going to recount the widespread unemployment among young people in the Arab world and broader in the Middle East. That the threat of economic uh, pressure from a global free trade introduced in the early 70s in Egypt by Sadat and then more widely through the Middle East the last 10 or 15 years along with high rates of human uh, growth, population growth, has produced this backlash against globalization and the United States is at the center of globalization. And yet I'm struck that in the last two years the United Nations Development Program has issued two different reports on the Arab human development both in 2002 and 2003. The one in 2002 really lamented the lack of economic progress and economic integration of the Arab world into the world economy. And most all of the senior writers of that report were Arab. The second report issued in 2003 focused almost entirely on what they called the production of knowledge and its lack thereof uh, in, in a Western sense in uh, Arab universities and the lack of freedom for people and intellectual thought in the Arab world. Now, the 2003 report concluded with a main concern about the reaction to 9-11. Now, quote, it resulted in reducing the number of Arab students in the United States quite markedly. In the case of some countries, important knowledge acquisition opportunities for young Arabs were thus curtailed, and one of the countries they worried most about was Saudi Arabia, where in the two years after 9-11, a foreign uh, Saudi Arabian study in the United States dropped by more than 30%. It was also that report written almost entirely uh, by Arabs, as was the research team, uh, mostly done uh, by Arabs. 
And lastly, I think, as the first couple of slides here may have indicated, there's an inclination to say it's all the Israeli issue. The United States would just change its policy on the Arab-Israeli question and get behind uh, some kind of different policy with regard to the Arab-Israeli issue. This would all go away. And certainly, as you'll see in some things I'm about to show you in a few minutes, the Israeli issue is a significant and important one. But it wouldn't explain uh, the widespread sentiment that appears very anti-American outside the Arab world, in Pakistan, in Iran, Turkey, uh, for instance. And in many of those countries, Iran, for instance, the sentiment for Arabs is not deep. These are not Arab societies, and they don't tend to emote uh, for Arab nationalist issues. So what I'd like to do is really two or three things now. I'd like to talk about the scope of anti-Americanism. How widespread is it, and how should we understand that? I'd like to then concentrate for a few minutes on what I think is a very basic image uh, called the imperialist image, which is the title I gave for the subpart of this talk. I want to try to deconstruct what I call this imperialist image. In some ways, the way Edward Said deconstructed what he called the Orientalist image. We've thought a lot about how we see them and very little about how they see us. And I'd like to try to articulate at least a conceptual notion of what are the core beliefs about how they see us. And then I'd like to talk about how that's playing itself out, uh, in my view, uh, across the Middle East today. So let me uh, start um, with this. This is just a, a a poll done by Jim Zogby and a Lebanese-based group called the Arab Thought Foundation. He surveyed 3,200 people in eight countries, and Jim produced a book called What Arabs Think. Now, I'm not going to vouch for the sampling techniques. I'm not going to vouch for the veracity of the survey data. If we had really excellent content analysis of what the media portrays, what the religious community portrays, what you could see in the popular media in the Arab world, I think we would know a lot more about uh, the Arab and Muslim world, but I think our knowledge on that is thin. We tend to grab pictures like the few I started with, uh, and they're easy to find, but we don't know whether those are really the main or the exception. We don't really have the kind of systematic surveys, and I think uh, people at the National Science Foundation and elsewhere should get busy and start funding the kinds of studies to get a better perception uh, rather than just picking out the things that are unbelievably uh, intense, anti-American or anti-Semitic or some of the things I'll show you here in a few minutes, and find out how frequent is that and how is the rest of the background uh, look. But in any case, Zogby tried in the Arab world. He looked in Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Kuwait, Lebanon, United Arab Emirates, Morocco, and Egypt, and in the Palestine territories, asked him a bunch of questions, but one of which was how you feel about the United States. And he makes the very simple point, and it's pretty evident here, that uh, negative sentiment toward the United States is very widespread, especially in countries that have allied to us, like Saudi Arabia, uh, of course, less so in countries that have been heavily dependent on us uh, for their security, like Kuwait. And, and in Kuwait, not only are we less uh, negatively thought of, about 40% actually said they thought favorably of us. We're only 12% in Saudi Arabia responded that they felt very uh, positively towards um, Americans. Now, by the way, Zogby makes the point, and I want to just point this out, that this is not anti-West. He also asked about Canada. He asked about France. In those cases, 
they all, in all respondents' countries, more than 50% responded favorably, that their sentiments were positive toward those countries. So something more complicated is going on just than a rejection of Western values, if you take any of this at all, is, is revealing. And I'm not vouching for his surveys, I'm just throwing them up there the way of some data. I don't know much about any other data that's out there. Now, the situation in Iran is more complicated. And I'm only going to talk about Iran and parts of the Arab world. It's the only part of the Muslim world I've had any real experience uh, looking at very carefully. A week ago, at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, Iran's president, Mohammad Hakami, repeatedly agreed that the world needed to align against terrorism and eradicate it, although he always made the exception that Hamas and Hezbollah are not terrorist organizations. He makes the distinction between uh, resistance to occupation and terrorism. But putting that aside, he said, but what we really need is a dialogue of civil among civilizations. And this is a theme he's been calling for over the last five or six months. He said that Iran is not ready yet for any official dialogue with the United States because of America's hostility toward the Iranian government and its continued accusation that Iran's government is seeking weapons of mass destruction, aligned to al-Qaeda, and so on and so forth. And so what Hatami has proposed instead is a dialogue of civilizations at the level of universities and intellectuals. And he'd like to see this promoted as widely and as quickly as possible. Now, at the same time in Tehran, they were hosting something called the Ten Days of Dawn, to celebrate the 21st anniversary of the return of Ayatollah Khomeini to Tehran. And at the 10 Days of Dawn convention running simultaneously, people came from Al-Qaeda, they claim, Ansar al-Islam, Hezbollah Islami, Latin American uh, guerrillas of various kinds, the IRA sent some people, Corsican separatists uh, were there, I think you can get the picture, uh, a wide set of folks there to talk about what they said confronting the American great Satan. And Ayatollah Ahmed Janati, who is the head of the Guardian Council in Iran, addressed the assembly, and he said this, lots of things, but he said this, and this is a direct quote, today, mankind has a common enemy, and that enemy is the American great Satan. Anyone who fights the great Satan, for whatever reason, is on our side, and anyone who's not, is on the opposite side. Now, in a mirror image of what President Bush said, uh, in his 2001 State of the Union address, uh, where you're either with us or against us, Janati lays out at that dawn, 10 days of dawn convention, the same day that Hakimi is calling for a dialogue of civilization, I think a, 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 a very clear and uh, difficult to analyze division inside Iran between people who become known as conservatives and people who become known as reformers, and much of the reformers go and have given up on Hakimi. And so for me to judge how people feel in Iran about the United States is very difficult. I can tell you this, that in December of 2002, the managing director of the National Institute for Research and Public Opinion in Iran was prosecuted, and convicted actually. He was accused of manipulating the results of a poll he had done in October of 2002 and published in Tehran. And the results showed that 74% of the 1,500 Iranians he had interviewed favored restoration of the relation with the United States. And that 45.8% of those same believed that, I quote, 
Washington's policy on Iran is to some extent correct. Almost half agreed to that statement. Not surprising why he was stopped from publishing anymore. Now, last June in 2003, an Iranian newspaper, Yasin Now, published a poll, and this was the question. What are the actual demands of the Iranian people? And here were the possible responses and the percentage of people who they published in this newspaper in Tehran supposedly responded this way. 13% said the actual demands of the Iranian people are solutions to the problems of people's livelihood and the continuation of the present political party. Policy, I'm sorry. 16% said political reform and increases in the power of the reformers. 26% said fundamental change in the management and performance of the system for efficient economic growth. And 45% said change in the political system even with foreign intervention. Now, what should we make of this? Diverse calls for America, come and help us, and death to America at the same time. I think rather than religion or culture or Israel per se, the answer lies in a mental image that has deep historical roots uh, in the Middle East and in the Muslim world more generally, and that I think it also has psychological and political functions that make it enormously popular in the Middle East and very difficult uh, to confront. And I want to describe it to you quickly and then lay out in just the last few minutes how it plays out today and why we need to think about it in ways differently than we have so far. Imagine the pressure you're under if you live in a place where you think your culture and your country is threatened by a state vastly more powerful than yours. One where you would like to respond to it somehow, but you really can't figure out just how. And you're constrained by a variety of normative and moral inhibitions against violence and other kinds of, of, of killing and the like. What do you do? You can protest, like Gandhi did, and it only works if you think that that kind of appeal to moral high ground will somehow affect uh, the imperialist. If you believe the imperialist will come at you uh, with unlimited violence, that won't work. Or you can fight. But to fight, you have to have a picture of reality that allows you to think that if you do fight, there's some chance of success. And I believe that's what this imperialist image does. And let me, let me tell you how it works. I've described it over the years, but it starts with a picture of what you think motivates the imperialist and why you think they're there. And for the stereotypical view, and all I'm going to do for a moment here is just describe it in its most ideal extreme form. Very few people in the Middle East would go this far. Um, this is later in that, actually it's earlier in that same call to jihad that I showed you earlier. What is it that the imperialist is doing? Well, the imperialist first has been occupying the lands of Islam. And it has wreaked great devastation in the territory. And if their aims were religious or economic, it's also to preserve the Jews' petty state divert attention for its occupation of Jerusalem, and so on. You can read this. It's pretty standard fare if you study the Middle East. What the imperialist is interested in, in the stereotypical, most extreme vision, is essentially to take your economic resources and make them their own. 
It's not to make you into their image. It is not to impose their culture on you. Very few people in the Arab world think, or the Muslim world, that the United States is trying to make them into little Americans. Actually, I think a lot would be happy if we did. It's to the contrary. They think we're trying, in this image, to enslave them, deprive them of what we have, and exploit them so that we can remain rich. It's a very different image than you might imagine in terms of Americanization. I don't think that's uh, what their main image of concern is. I've taken cartoons, as Dale said, if you travel in the sites of the Middle East, the vividness of the pictures. I was showing Julia, Julia earlier today on the Al Jazeera website. There's a line that says, Liberated Iraqis link page after page of thumbnail of children blown to shreds, women holding the decapitated remains of their baby girl or whatever. And you can go look at them if you'd like, but they're, they're pretty gruesome, and there are lots and lots of them, and they're designed to incite, uh, obviously, not only anti-Americanism, but also anti-war. I've decided throughout this afternoon I'll only use cartoons. I think they, they, they get deeper in many ways to the psyche of a society, I think its humor is a better indicator of where their actual thinking is. This is out of an Iranian uh, magazine. You get the picture, though, Enron, it's oil. It's also the Israelis, of course. Uh, I only see Enron. I have, and I'll show for some of you later if you want to see, Al Jazeera ran, still is running, a motion picture cartoon of the two World Trade Centers going down and then they're replaced by two giant oil um, gasoline pumps with Iraq written across them. And the U.S. government has protested vigorously, and Al Jazeera has taken that down uh, off their website uh, lately. But the, point, the first point I want to make about this imperialist image, when they think about what does the imperialist want, it's oil. It's material gain. It's wealth at their expense. This is uh, says Osama bin Laden. You can catch the, the drift in terms of, uh, this again is an Iranian uh, picture, the power and the helplessness uh, that they are portraying uh, in their writing over and over and in these pictures very quickly. This is just a comparison. I don't think this imperialist image I'm describing is unique today. This is a picture of the British uh, half a century ago. I think the image, this imperialist image is it's there in their repertoire of an outsider image and that they can fill it in with a different content of the individual country that's the imperialist. It happens to be the Americans and the placeholder right now. But the operation of this image is very, uh, very powerful. A second part of this image. How can a country so far away with so few people actually in the region do this? How can it control from so far away and with so few strings. After all, even in Iraq, we only have 100,000 or so troops. In the rest of the Middle East, we have almost no troops and relatively little uh, political power. How does a country then go about exercising the kind of massive control they accuse us of earlier? Well, one way that's traditional in the, in the historical version of this image is to assume that the imperial power has agents in the region and works through the hidden hand of its local conspirators. In this picture, um, this is from the Arab news, shows 
the future Iraqi regime, and then who are going to be in it. Of course, we're at the top, and Israel's involved, and there's some Arab clients in Britain and a few others, but it'll basically be uh, a bunch of American agents, as they see it, serving our purpose. This comes through over and over. This is Iranian, uh, the Eagles family, and you've got Britain and us and Israel, of course, and Musharraf has recently joined the, the group, uh, one of our primary agents now uh, in the region. And they see the world in terms of hidden hands and agents, and did 100 years ago, too, when they were explaining how the British and the French uh, controlled them. And they see us, and they look for our hidden hand. This alliance is one that uh, is obvious to all of them. Uh, we don't like to see it because it connotes a certain anti-Semitic uh, quality, but it's, it's common fare in Iran. This is another one in the Arab world. What's interesting, in the classic stereotype that I've studied at the first half of the century, when they were thinking about Britain or France or Russia, the locals were all agents of the great power. In this conceptualization, you start to see it's not clear who's the agent of whom. And in this one, same way, except this one's not so unclear. It's clearly an anti-Semitic argument that the Americans are the hidden hand. The hidden hand behind it is, of course, Israel. Behind the whole thing. Again, a very common, I could have picked 50 others, but these get the picture of it. And this one a little less, that there are hidden hands controlling everything through this conspiratorial network of elites run by Americans. This one also run by Israelis. Uh, let me come back to that in a minute. The last feature of this stereotype is central to how it functions is a belief that in the metropole, that would be in Washington today, decisions are taken by conspiracy of elites. And that's important because that means they believe you can change the policy in the metropole. They don't believe all the elites are in favor of it because they have deeply conflicting interests. And they're working secretly through the CIA or oil interests or somebody else. And it also means they believe they can penetrate it and influence it and that most of the mass public in the United States is not in support of what that government wants. It's quite different than, say, an enemy image uh, that the Americans had of Nazi Germany and the belief that most Germans would support the Nazi government, and it would be very difficult to separate the government from its people. That's not their view. Their view is you can either manipulate through conspiracy the elite in the metropole, and they're constantly looking for ways to do that by who you know or what they know or how you can get behind that curtain and get networked in to... Wolfowitz or Bush or whoever, and when I meet with them, that's what they're always asking to be networked in somehow. And this is even if they're Islamists or Nasserites or whatever. And that's what I want to say before I close. Three things about how this plays out in the Middle East today. First point, leaders in the region look to the U.S. I, for reasons of simplicity, would say that in the last hundred years, there have been three types of elites seeking power in the Middle East. Those who are arguing for sort of a status-based regime based on Egypt or Jordan or Saudi Arabia these days or one of the sheikhdoms or Iran. Those who argue it ought to be ethnically based, Arab or Iranian or Turk. And those who argue it ought to be Islamic-based on the Ummah, the broader Islamic community. And leaders of all three kinds turn often to the United States seeking our support to help them win domestically at home. It's... It's not surprising to me that 45% of the Iranians would say foreign intervention is probably the only way you're going to get a change in the government and that they would welcome that. 
They tend to see both great hostility toward intervention and take it as an obvious fact of how the world actually works. Individuals of all three kinds have allied with the United States at different moments. The monarchs are obviously been allied to us, Sadat allied to us. Uh, the Baathists, I have a wonderful cartoon from Al Jazeera, but we couldn't make it work on this computer of a podium pedestal where Saddam Hussein is put up there by Uncle Sam, then pulled down by Uncle Sam, and then a big thing comes up, we got him. And the implication of the whole little cartoon, this moving thing, is you put him in, you take him out, you put him in, you take him out, you do what you like. But recall that in 1989, Saddam Hussein was a central player of something called the Arab Cooperation Council, which is an alliance of Jordan, Iraq, Egypt, and Saudi Arabia. He was supposedly part of our alliance system that we had backed during the Iraq War. So it's, they know perfectly well, the monarchs, as well as the Ba'athists, as well as the Islamists, need I even remind you, have been closely associated with the United States. Not just the Mujahideen, we supported the Muslim Brothers in the mid-1980s in Jordan so that they could upset the government in Syria. We've supported religious groups all across the Middle East at different moments in time. And the Islamists themselves are not opposed to turning to the United States, often uh, for arms and support. The cultural gulf isn't too big in that regard. So my first point is, when you ask about who's anti-American, and remember, within the Islamist movement, within state-based regimes, and within national or ethnically-based regimes, there are liberals, there are liberal Islamists, and there are liberal state types, and there have been liberal ethnic uh, arguers, and there are authoritarian ones. America has typically preferred the authoritarian ones. Uh, but regardless of which type you are, they turn to the United States and then rail against the United States if it supports those elites who are against them. Second, there's not a widespread rejection of values that we associate with the West. These elite alliances fluctuate all the time depending on what our current status is with their particular position. This is a poll done, and again, I'm not sure how great the sample is. It was done in Egypt and across the Arab world as part of the World Values Survey done by the University of Michigan. And it asked the question, uh, what's the best form of government? And how many people would favor a democratic form of government as opposed to some others? And Western Europe is here. And this is published in the United Nations Development Report that I mentioned earlier that's getting very wide circulation in the Arab world uh, and elsewhere, and written mostly by Arabs. So even if it's wrong, they're the ones exaggerating uh, what they'd like to believe about their own populations, which is that they're West European in their attitudes about this word. Now, what content they fill into the word democracy varies, uh, perhaps, but this is not a rejection of this. A rejection of authoritarian rule is very clear, and they claim to be as widespread in the Arab world as it is uh, in other parts of the world. Now, gender equality in education, they aren't quite the same as in the Western world. And on this one, quite different, gender equality in, in employment, where in the Arab world, the low outlier uh, from the rest of the world in terms of how women would be treated in employment. The point I want to make is that we're not associated with democracy and liberal values by very many people in the Middle East. And they reject those labels from time to time, but support the content of what they mean uh, and when asked uh, in different ways. 
let me make that in a, in a way that's a more narrative in case you don't like statistics. I was reading Al-Haram last week, and Nawal Al-Sawadi had a very interesting piece. She's a female feminist, uh, Arab socialist, and she wrote an article called The Unholy Alliance. And she said this about the plight of women, which is her main concern in the Arab world. Women are besieged by a double pincer assault, that of corporate consumerism and free market on the one hand, and religious political fundamentalism on the other. In her mind, it's very clear that U.S.-led capitalism and Islamic fundamentalism are allies. And she goes on. She's talking about the women who protested the banning of the veil in France. She says, end quote, In these demonstrations, the young women and girls who marched were wearing the veil were often clothed in tight-fitting jeans, their faces covered with layers of makeup, their lips painted bright red, and the lashes around their eyes thick and black with heavy mascara. They walked along the streets swaying in high-heeled shoes, drinking out of bottles of Coca-Cola or Sprite. Their demonstration was proof of the link between Western capitalist consumerism and Islamic fundamentalism. <laughs> it's a complicated world in terms of what they're rejecting and what they see attached to what, who they see as the promotive of which values. Let me finish. There is a dangerous side to this, and I'd be remiss not to draw your attention to it strongly. In that 10 Days of Dawn conference in Tehran I mentioned at the outset, all the leaders spoke under a giant banner. And the banner read this, America cannot do a damn thing. When I was in graduate school, I would ask Dick Cottom, why are they holding these hostages? This is crazy. They're destroying any hope they had of building world support for this mass-based revolution. And, and Dick Cottom would tell me, look, Rick, Khomeini's not interested in how the world sees this revolution. He's interested in how an Iranian see it. And he knows perfectly well that most Iranians don't believe they're going to be able to stand up against the wrath of the United States, and this thing is going to come down at any minute. By holding the hostages, he's signaling to the rest of the Iranians, America cannot do a damn thing. And the mindset that he said Khomeini was trying to break was that of an Iranian belief that the great imperialist outside power controls everything through its hidden hands, and you guys don't have a chance. And I think that if you're an Islamist today, you've got to hit the World Trade Center. You've got to do something that shocks Arabs, because all, so many of them, share this basic parameters of what I call this, this, this imperialist image, which leads, to, for some of them, to a sense of, of very little efficacy and no hope. Well, that's dangerous for us because it will lead them uh, to attack us in ways that uh, can try to convince Arabs that they do have some role to play. There was a very interesting article in Al-Haram besides the one on women's issues. And it was going on and on about how there's more thinking about what the reshaped future of the Middle East will be in Washington than there is in the Arab world. And we as Arabs had better get busy and start thinking about where the heck are we going, uh, given how much attention Washington is paid to this. Rather than end on this very cautionary note about the danger of them trying to change their own mindset about their ineffectiveness, which I think is at the core of what we're most threatened by, let me make three comments. The U.S. says it wants change, and in my view this is what it should want, and so do the vast majority of the people in the region.
The U.S. says it wants democracy, and so do the vast majority of the people in the region. And the U.S. says it wants a two-state solution to the Arab-Israeli conflict with boundaries similar to those of 1967, and so do most people in the region. And so while there are some very important things on which we disagree, I think the room for uh, going back to where we were in the 1950s is not nearly so narrow as we think. That I'll stop. Thank you.